Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the ICU Ed and Todd cast, ICU Ed like education, Ed and Todd, Todd cast podcast. I am Eddie. He is Todd, and we are the Ed and Todd cast. Messing with the intro a little bit. Sounded a little bit better in my head. Uh, back to the workshop. Wait, did you just say I is Eddie and he is Todd? I am Eddie and he is Todd and Got we are. Got it. I can conjugate my verbs, Todd. We are going to go back a little bit for our quote new article. It's still within a year and talk about box. There are two box trials. We're going to talk about the blood pressure one, which was titled Blood Pressure Targets and Comatose Survivors of Cardiac Arrest, published in the New England Journal of Medicine, August 2022 by, I'm sorry in advance, I promise I'm trying, but uh, I don't really speak Danish. I would have said Cage Guard. I'm a little bit skeptical. So if you're listening, want to correct me, please message or email us at icuntiecast at gmail.com or just at icucast. Wow. We're also going to give some brief thoughts on WeanSafe, which is weaning from mechanical ventilation in ICUs across 50 countries, a multi-center perspective observational cohort. It was published January 2023 in Lancet Respiratory Medicine by Pham et al. That one was a little easier for you. A little bit easier for me. We, As we try to be transparent, we'll note that Todd is one of the, quote, wean safe investigators since our institution was one of the sites. But as a descriptive observational cohort, I'm not sure that there's many major intellectual conflicts of interest you have. And there's 480 sites, so we're one of 480. Yeah. So, but before we get there, there's been a theme of threads on social media recently, like annoy an EM doctor in one sentence or annoy a medical student in one sentence. And similarly, there was one for intensivists, but I also saw a make an intensivist's day, like make them happy in one sentence. The specific thread I found was from Kevin Chung, whose Twitter handle is at ChungK1031, make a critical care docs day in one sentence. And there were a couple of them. There were the driving pressures less than 15. Uh, Hey, I saw that patient who was intubated and dialyzed for over a month in your unit in the IC recovery clinic. There was decannulated and going to rehab. But I think the thread winners for me were the ones that were, thank you for saving my life. Thank you for saving my child's life. I mean, that's why we do that, right? Yeah. I think that's ultimately what continues to to be the engine that drives the train, right? Is the fact that we get people that come back to our ICU a couple months after they are our patients. And, you know, we, first of all, hardly recognize them because they look way different in real life than they do in, in their sick life uh, when they're in the ICU. But having them come back and, and say thanks and show how well they're doing, I think is clearly sort of the high point for pretty much everybody. Probably not just in the ICU, but probably in the hospital and, and all of those. Other other big ones, I think, when you are lucky enough, and I say it this way, even though it makes people nervous, when you're lucky enough to have a colleague of yours ask if you will take care of their loved one, uh, I think is, you know, huge respect. And there's a lot of pressure with that also, but, you know, just the fact that they ask means that they respect you as a clinician and, and trust you to take care of their loved ones. And that that also is sort of a, a pat on the back and a an attaboy or a girl in your career. Yeah. And another thing that we've referenced a couple of times, another way that you can make my day in the ICU is my charge nurse coming up to me and saying, Hey, we're fully staffed today. Whatever you need, we can we can go ahead and do it. Yeah, those are nice. And and you know, to use some analogy that we had used in an earlier podcast, you know, when you go from the bottom right corner to the top left corner, i.e. from the patient's not doing well very well and I don't know what's going on to, hey, I figured out what's going on. I've implemented some treatment for whatever is now going on and the patient's doing better, that that also is sort of a confidence boost and a start of a good day. So I, I told Todd last week that I wanted to bring this topic up just to talk about. Todd was like, well, I'm a lot more interested in what can annoy a critical care doctor. I've got a lot of those examples. So Todd, I hear you got a list for me. 
Yeah, I don't know that I'll go through all of them in the list, but I was sitting there last night thinking of the things that annoy me. What a great way to try and fall asleep, by the way. Um, and, um, you know, a couple of them, maybe, maybe the biggest one is I know they're DNR, DNI, but they didn't say that they wouldn't try BiPAP. We've had a little less of that at our institution here recently, but for a while, man, it seemed like every admission we were hearing that. That's a slippery slope. Yeah. And then one of my, my special ones is, is that I hear a lot. We consulted nephrology because the creatinine and this new patient was 1.8. And it drives me a little bit bonkers because, you know, we, at least in in my closed circle, are all internal medicine trained. And therefore, you know, I think we should at least get a crack at something before we start calling the specialist, unless you need dialysis. So if the patient had a creatinine of 1.8 and a potassium of 8, that... It, you know, okay, fine. But usually if it's just a little bit of renal failure, I mean, man, I'd love to take a take a swing at it and see if I can figure it out before I go calling in the specialist. I mean, that might just be happening late on your weeks of service where the team already knows your ability to take care of AKI. Yeah, they, they're confident that I'm not going to be able to figure out why this creatinine is 1.8. So might as well call in the experts immediately. The good news is, is that sometimes I don't even have to figure it out. It just gets better even when I don't know. <laughs> sometimes it does. What about someone telling you that Hey, this patient looks like they're going to tire out. Yeah, you uh, you know that I love that uh, when people come and say, hey, I'm really worried about bed five because I just think she's going to tire out. Honestly, I know the concept of, you know, they later in their disease state start retaining CO2 and we say they tire out. But does a person really like tire out like their respiratory muscles get weak or they tire out? And then lately it's been followed by somebody saying, and I went and talked to this patient and they told me they're tired. Well, of course they're tired. They're like sick. They're in an ICU. They're breathing 30 times a minute. I mean, they probably would like to take a nap and get some sleep. And it's usually followed by that 9 p.m. phone call of, hey, I think the patient is tired. Yeah. I think if we don't move on to box and wean safe, I might tire out. <laughs> okay, fair enough. So enough of that, and let's talk about box. Like I said, box is blood pressure targets for comatose survivors of cardiac arrest. There were two box trials. One was for oxygen saturation targets, which we won't talk about today, maybe next time. Uh, we'll hit the acronym first, as is tradition, box. I'm pretty sure I got this one. It's from blood pressure and oxygenation targets in post-resuscitative care. So the B from blood pressure and OX from oxygenation, which is pretty smooth, but I don't really love that I have to split them as, you know, box blood pressure and box O2. So that knocks it down a peg for me. Uh, I'd say, you know, B, B plus. What do you think, Todd? Yeah, I mean, that's probably right. I I, I don't know why, uh, and people will laugh, I'm sure, on the podcast, but there's something about just the whole box thing that I don't necessarily like that much. So box, what do you mean? box blood pressure, box oxygen. I, I don't know. The blood pressure and the oxygen part don't bother me, but the whole box part bothers me. I don't know. It's just not a pleasing word to my ears. Box? Yes, correct. What would be a pleasing word to your ears, Todd? Oh, I don't know. I mean, even cardboard is better than box. Cardboard is better than cardboard with the hard R? Yeah. Are there soft R's? Like, I thought they were all R. <laughs> That's fair. Why do I care about blood pressure targets? So sepsis PAM was a 2014 article that randomized patients with sepsis, so not post-cardiac arrest, to map of 80 to 85 versus 65 to 70. And they found no difference in mortality. More arrhythmias in the higher MAP target group, probably from more pressors. And then in the subgroup of patients with a baseline hypertension, there was less renal replacement therapy if you had a higher blood pressure target. But, you know, that's a subgroup of an exploratory outcome, so hardly a definitive conclusion. So why why did I want to look at this here? I mean, I think, first of all, let's be totally transparent up front. 
I don't, I'm not sure we know what we're doing with blood pressure targets and critical illness in general. And so I think it's an open question in any critically ill patient population. Do you know where the map of 65, which drives a lot of our care, comes from in general? Uh, no, other than, you know, that's kind of the dogma that we've been taught. I actually am old enough that I was taught 60 when I was uh, growing up in medicine. Uh, there was some debate at that time as to whether or not we should use a systolic pressure of, of 90 or a mean arterial pressure of 60 off of my radar screen, but it was decided that a mean was probably better than a systolic. I think that's probably fair because you can have a systolic of 90 and a diastolic of 20. And, you know, diastole tends to drive perfusion pressure better than systole. So that's probably not an acceptable blood then, pressure for us. And then it shifted to 65 sometime while you've been training, but you were unclear exactly why. Yeah. We've talked maybe a little bit about some studies of 65 versus 75 in sepsis and, you know, in the older patient and the patient that has underlying hypertension and, and the those concepts, but 65 was just kind of the overall accepted blood pressure target. So this is a little bit off topic, but I think it's important for us to at least, you know, touch upon a map of 65 talking about you know, tissue perfusion. That's the goal, right? So you want to make sure that your end tissues are perfusing. You're not in shock. You and I have both seen the patient who has a map of 60 or so, and they don't seem to have any signs of end organ dysfunction. And we've seen people with higher maps in 65 show signs of shock. So I just want to go on the record and say, Eddie, that none of my patients have a map of 60. I'm <laughs> always able to get them to 65. Of course you are. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, you need a blood pressure to adequately perfuse your tissues. And, you know, I think the marker of what is your blood pressure high enough is, are your tissues adequately perfused? And you can look at that in a number of different ways. What we used to call a poor man's swan, which was what is the patient's urine output and are they are they thinking correctly? Are they cognating okay? And now you can add to that a lactate measurement if you'd like. Do they have an arterial lactate? Recognizing that there are patients who will make urine and their creatinine will rise even if they're underperfusing their kidneys, or maybe if they underperfuse their tissues, don't necessarily uh, mount a huge lactate response. But in general, a combination of those probably gives you a reasonable idea as to whether or not whatever blood pressure you're at, 60, 65, 70, uh, is that something that is an adequate or close to adequate number for that patient? Yeah, so it's really interesting. I have thoughts on that. One is that your map of 65 is probably like your high specificity cutoff, right? There are patients who probably or could be okay with a lower MAP score, but if you hit a MAP of 65, that you're probably okay there. Yeah, and you and I don't do a ton of trauma, but you know, trauma has sort of moved into the permissive hypotension, hypoperfusion era where there's some recognition that the things that we do to raise blood pressure, whether that be crush you with fluids and or blood products and trauma, or you know, give you exogenous catecholamines have negative effects and they may not be entirely positive for our patients. And in a trauma world, a little bit of hypoperfusion and hypotension may actually be beneficial from a clotting standpoint, you know, lower flow clots a little bit easier. And so they've really moved. And there are some data in the trauma world that this is good for our trauma patients, that we should have let them have lower blood pressures if that's what their normal physiologic state, if that not normal, but that's what their physiologic state is during that condition that they're in. We haven't gotten there yet with non-trauma critical care. Uh, and in fact, like Box 
blood pressure and the sepsis trial where they looked at 65 versus 75. We keep trying higher blood pressures in our studies and not lower blood pressures. But I think at some point you're going to see people try, you know, 55 as a map and see what effect that has versus 65. Yeah. So that's a good segue. So let's get into what they did. So their patients, they enrolled 802 adult patients who had out of hospital cardiac arrest from a presumed cardiac origin and had return of spontaneous circulation, but unable to respond to verbal commands at the time of presentation to the hospital. Their consort diagram was in their supplement, as well as their full exclusion criteria. Really, the biggest exclusion was for the inability to sustain a systolic blood pressure greater than 80, despite vasopressors and support devices, there was logistical reasons that patients weren't enrolled, or that they regained consciousness during screening, so they were no longer comatose. Their table one is their baseline characteristics, which were pretty even. And if the question is, is this representative of the patients I take care of? I'm not super certain for at least you and I, Todd, and so it's worth talking about, and we'll get into that. Uh, age, the median age was 62, it was about 80% male, which is a lot, but also in line with other out-of-hospital cardiac arrest trials like TTM2. Almost half the patients had hypertension. Where it starts to split off for me is, and this obviously may be different for some of our listeners, but they said 85% of patients presented with a shock rhythm. That's not the weird part, but 85% had a witness arrest and 87% had bystander CPR. That's the thing I think for like more dense population areas like Europe, Denmark for this study uh, is a thing, but I think it's hardly the global standard. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. That's probably higher than we're used to seeing and higher than, you know, a lot of the U.S. would see uh, for sure. I mean, I think, A, there's a couple factors in play. One is density of population, as you said. The other is, you know, willingness and or training of bystanders to be able to do CPR and, and, you know, hop in and assist and that sort of stuff. Yeah, I think it's more probably more the training. I think, you know, uh, maybe this is my rose-colored glasses, but I feel like most people would jump in and try to save someone's life if they had the training to do so. Yeah, definitely some rose-colored glasses. The other thing I'd say in this in, in table one is, is that, you know, in general, 14% of their patients had diabetes, which is probably lower than we see in the United States. It's not really that big of a surprise, I don't think, in that, you know, Northern Europe probably has fewer type 2 diabetics based off of uh, lower BMIs than we have in the US. They're catching up, but they haven't caught up entirely. I don't know that that necessarily makes a difference in the outcomes, but uh, the hypertension part of it may. And I think the hypertension is pretty relatable to what we see. So we're jumping around a little bit and coming back to their methods. What they did to, was fascinating to me as far as their separation between groups, at least for, I think it's worth talking about for a second. So this was a two by two factorial design with the higher versus lower blood pressure on one side and higher versus lower oxygen target on the other. The oxygen target was unblinded, but the blood pressure part was blinded. How did they blind the blood pressure? Well, they took the blood pressure hookup to the monitor and modified half of them so the blood pressure would read 10% higher and the other halves would read 10% lower. And then they told all their providers to target a map of 70, which meant half of the quote 70s were actually 63 and the other half of the 70s were 77. I mean, that's ingenuity. I'll admit the first time I read this, I was like 63 versus 77. Why would you ever do that? And by the, but yeah, by the time I finished reading the methods, I was super impressed. Yeah. I think, um, I think that was a very awkward, yeah, first of all. But secondly, I think that, that we hear a lot of, well, you can't really blind this trial. You can't really blind this intervention. And I think 
lots of people would have argued prior to this, you can't really blind blood pressure because the bedside nurse is going to know and the clinicians are going to know because they're going to see it right there on the monitor. I think with some ingenuity, you can do blinding in a lot of studies. And I think this is one of those examples of that. I think it also actually plays into how important the investigators felt blinding was in this situation because, you know, they went and came up with this ingenious way of blinding when in reality, a lot of times we go, eh, it's open label. The outcome is an objective outcome. Do I really care if it's blinded or not? What kind of biases do you think would have been introduced if this were unblinded? I think there could have been difficulty in an unblinded trial of meeting the two, the two, uh, targets. You know, if you're, if I'm targeting 77, let's say, or 75, you know, I might be willing to accept 72 or 73 because quote, that's close enough. Uh, and so separation of arms may not have been as good. And likewise, you know, in the lower group, I think there may have been a tendency to try and do higher blood pressures in that group, higher than 65, 66, 67, say, uh, just because you knew that's the group they were in and you knew what their blood pressure was, and maybe less likely to aggressively wean in that group to get the patient back to 65 because, you know, it's fine to be 66 or 67. Yeah, so providers are primarily... A, creatures of habit, so doing what they're already known to do, and then also want to make sure that they're doing at least the best for their patients, despite them being randomized in a trial. Post-arrest care also varies in other ways throughout the world, so it's important to know that all the patients in this trial were cooled to 36 degrees Celsius for 24 hours and sedated with propofol and fentanyl, and after 24 hours, they were warmed and weaned from sedation. The protocol for blood pressure management was a little bit weird to me. I also recognize that creating a standard resuscitation protocol is just awkward to right. They had three steps. They had volume resuscitation to CVP of 10, then add norepi, and then add dopamine after that. Personally, I'm not targeting CVPs in my volume resuscitation or using much dopamine at all, particularly on top of norepi, but I also don't think this is a problem insofar as interpreting the data. Yeah, I mean, did the group that had uh, higher blood pressure targets, did they get more fluids? Did they get more dopamine? And, you know, as far as I can tell from reading the manuscript, that's not the case. And so I agree with you. While I think it's something to know how they did it and to keep in the back of our mind, I'm not sure it really has a big, big effect on the overall outcome. The primary outcome was a composite of death or discharge with a cerebral performance category of three or four, which is a severe disability or vegetative state. It's interesting to note, really just to note that a cerebral performance category or CPC of five is death. So they could have just said CPC of three through five. So secondary outcomes will go over were reasonable, including a Rankin score, Montreal cognitive assessments, as well as organ failure assessments, but also had a neuro-specific enolase level. Anything I need to know about neuron-specific enolase? Not available routinely in clinical care, and we do a lot of it because we think it might be a surrogate marker of brain damage of actual tissue, you know, like a troponin from a myocardial infarction. But all of the data that I know on it is, is that it's not very good in really determining that. And right now, as far as we know that there is nothing you can intervene. Like a troponin, if they have a correct. coronary obstruction, you can intervene on that. Yeah, correct. I just had this very, very, very awful image of you ordering enolases on every single one of your patients next week when you're up in the ICU. I'm going to wait till you follow me on service and order them all the day I come off. Perfect. Can I take us back just to the outcome really quickly and just set up a thought in people's minds, which is, you know, is this the right outcome? is do we care as much about survival with good neurologic function as we do sur overall survival? Neurosurgery sort of started this whole process of if you survive with a bad neurologic outcome in a neurosurgical condition like subarachnoid hemorrhage, they started saying, I'm not sure that's a success for us. Yeah, that was that, I think, 
uh, MCA stroke trial where they're talking about hemicranies that, yeah, people survived, but they all yeah. had poor neurologic status. Yeah, I, I think that's – I do think that's reasonable. I think that in patients that that are at high risk for surviving with a – and high risk isn't necessarily, you know, 80% of these patients are going to survive with a neurologic – poor neurologic status, but high risk being that these conditions result in a fair amount of anoxic brain injury and and poor neurologic status. I do tend to think that survival with a reasonable neurologic status is probably the outcome that we should be looking at instead of just overall survival. And in this this trial, there's not a big difference between those two, so it's not necessarily uh, something that's that pertinent. So this is certainly off topic here, but Todd, do you ever think we'll get to the point where we talk about homogenous patient populations for trials and trying to target that a little bit more specifically and seeing if some of our interventions would work in maybe not all sepsis patients, but patients with X type of sepsis. Are we ever going to get to the point where we match the outcome to the patient? So saying different patients might have different desired outcomes here? Yeah, maybe. It becomes complicated only because you have to call your shot ahead of time. Like you can't do this on the post on the back end or people will say you're fishing for for results. Uh, so you're going to have to call it on the front end. And it's, you know, I've been doing this for a long time and you would think, and maybe it's just, I'm a slow learner. I don't know. You would think you'd learn these things and get pretty good at doing them. And it's still really hard to figure out what the right outcomes are in clinical trials. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense would just be very difficult and you'd have to find a very specific question where the outcome may differ by patient population, like younger versus older or. Yeah. And then I think you just said it right there at the end, which is you also have to have pretty clear, distinct phenotypes for your patients going in. You know, you have to, and, and maybe we're getting there with things like sepsis and ARDS and the phenotypes and the sub phenotypes that we're getting to where we can actually uh, figure out different of differences in phenotypes and what the different phenotypes look like on the front end. And so I think that's in uh, some encouragement that maybe we'll, we'll get there, but I still think we're a few years away. I think probably more than a few years. So I already jumped ahead to their table one, but 802 patients enrolled from March 2017 to December 2021, which is through COVID. They had a pretty apparent separation between groups. In figure one, the separations started to split around the time of randomization, but really hit their stride around four hours after, which is pretty impressive. Any thoughts before I hit the primary outcome there? No, I think, you know, other than this is a large study of odd hospital cardiac arrest. Um, I mean, we unfortunately take care of these patients a reasonable proportion of the time. I mean, when you are on uh, in the ICU, unfortunately, we admit these patients uh, not every day, but, you know, at least probably one a week or one a, every couple of weeks. And so it's a fairly common thing. But even saying that, you know, the the numbers that they enrolled in this trial still make it a, a big study. And, and I think probably a study that's large enough that I think this may be the answer. And I'm not sure that other people are really going to hop in here and say, you know, hey, I got a better plan. Let's let's try this again. Yeah. So figure two and table two give us our outcomes. It's a neutral trial where the CPC of three through five was not difference between groups, 34 versus 32%. And they didn't see any difference in their 90-day mortality, renal replacement therapy, Rankin score, neuron-specific enolase, really anything. There was no big difference in adverse events like infection, arrhythmia, bleeding, electrolyte disorders. Their Kaplan-Meier curve actually does show a small split in favor of lower blood pressure targets early, but this closes pretty definitively by day 10 or so. It's a little bit hard to tell. I think that 
with 800 patients enrolled uh, and these outcomes being very, very similar between the groups, I think it suggests that either of these strategies is probably okay. And that, you know, targeting a blood pressure of 65 to 75, a mean arterial pressure of 65 to 75 uh, is probably the right strategy for our patients after they're out of hospital cardiac arrest and that we can focus some finer details on other parts of their care. So what are those other parts of care? So you have a patient who comes in, you're taking care of them out of hospital cardiac arrest. They're currently comatose. We're not worried about blood pressure. What other things are you worried about in post-arrest care? How are you managing them? I think other things that we still are trying to figure out. So we're still somewhat trying to figure out whether we should be targeting different oxygen saturations. I think we have some emerging data in that area that says that, that maybe the oxygen target doesn't matter that much, but you know, we're still trying to figure out if hyperoxia in this population is really bad. And I think we're still trying to figure out what temperature we should be trying to keep them at, you know, that both of those things may require a fair amount of oversight from a bedside person, whether it's a nurse or a respiratory therapist or something like that. And blood pressure would too, but I think, you know, we can spend less of that energy with blood pressure now and more of that energy on things that we hopefully in the near future will figure out actually make a difference in outcomes in these patients. So, I mean, I guess you can say other questions that we might have in in post-arrest care. Airway is one of them. You know, there was a lot of discussion about whether or not in these patients in the field, should they get a definitive endotracheal tube or should they just get a superglottic airway? Uh, I think there's some provocative data in there that says maybe we should be doing superglottic airways, but man, do we need a, a more definitive trial in that era? Yeah. I mean, I think what I tell people about that is uh, if you can get the tube, great. Or if you think that the tube is the reason for the arrest, like an aspirate, massive aspiration or something, then definitely go ahead and get it. Otherwise, if you can't get it, then that's not the most important thing. Yeah, but that that whole philosophy assumes that I can predict whether or not I'm going to get a tube. And the people who believe in the superglottic airways think the delay in me trying to do an innovation may be detrimental to the patient's outcome. And so I think it's a viable question to, that we need to ask and answer at some point. You know, questions about what's the best way to make a diagnosis in these patients. And there's some recent data about should we pan scan and scan, you know, chest, abdomen, I guess, head, chest, abdomen, and pelvis in all of these patients. And some early data that that may improve our diagnostic accuracy and figuring out why somebody had an arrest, but uh, hasn't demonstrated a benefit in actual clinical outcomes and a benefit to overall benefit to the patients. But I think I think, you know, trying to look further in the area of does it matter once the patient gets to the hospital what their etiology of their arrest was before they got to the hospital or is the, you know, as we like to say in farm language, is the horse already out of the barn at that point? Yeah. So you're referring to the study in resuscitation that was published earlier this year by Branch at all. And there's been a couple other studies looking at whole body CTs and non-traumatic cardiac arrest. And so we've referenced this already in this patient population who is pretty sick to begin with. A lot of them are going to have poor outcomes. You know, there's something to be said about closure, right, for families. So if you have a cause, it might be easier for some families to accept other than, we're sorry, we don't know what happened, but we know that 
your loved one is not doing well right now after their arrest. Yeah, I think that's fair. It's a little bit, to me, though, like the autopsy. We get autopsies in patients with the hope that that's going to tell us why the patient died or what happened. And there's a reasonable percentage of the time we don't get an answer just because we're getting an autopsy. Or in this case, a pan CT after your arrest doesn't mean I'm going to be able to come back to you and say, this is why what happened to your loved one happened. Yeah, I'm just saying that if it's something where the discussion is at a halt because you don't know what's going on, that a CT scan may, may be helpful. But yeah, as far as getting it for all your patients in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, it doesn't really seem to matter much. Yeah, agreed. All right, so that was a good discussion, but we're moving on to WeanSafe, which was a 50-country multi-center prospective observational cohort on weaning practices from mechanical ventilation. The stated goals were to describe the epidemiology, management, timing, risk for failure, and outcomes of weaning in patients requiring at least two days of invasive mechanical ventilation. This included 481 ICUs in those 50 countries. What a lift. Weaning from the ventilator was the, f- was the first attempt at removing the patients from mechanical ventilation and successful weaning was not needing to be reintubated or dying in the seven days after extubation. So this was, this article is really, really dense. Like Denmark or what? Like European cities? Yes. Yes. There, it was a very dense article, not quite population dense. So we're going to hit some high points in our typical second article fashion so we can give way to discussion. A total of 5,689 patients enrolled from October 2017 to June 2018, so pre-COVID. 4,500 of those patients, or 77%, underwent at least one separation attempt. And 3,800, or 65% of patients, were successfully weaned from ventilation at day 90. About 28.3 patients died while on ventilation during the study. The median time from fulfilling weaning criteria to the first separation attempt was one day, with about 22.5% of patients who required five or more days. Of those weaning attempts, 15.5% had a failure, 65-ish percent had a less than one day wean, and about 10% each had two to six days or a greater than seven day wean. In their analysis, looking at factors which impacted delayed weaning, higher sedation was the most notable and was also associated with weaning failure. So there's a a couple of things here that I would like to highlight. What jumped out to you? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things about this trial that uh, I find very interesting. The first is is that almost 40% of the patients that were on the ventilator in this study were excluded. And they were excluded because they weren't ventilated for 48 hours. And when I first saw that, I thought, man, that seems like a huge number. Now, part of that is, is that I'm in a medical intensive care unit and I don't see patients, see a lot of patients that are ventilated post-procedures, post-surgery and that sort of stuff. And you can imagine those patients are more likely, I suspect, to be ventilated fewer than 48 hours. Yeah, depending on the surgery, right? Yeah. But we do see overdoses that are often ventilated for less than 48 hours. Sometimes asthma may be ventilated for less than 48 hours. And we also see patients who get an endotracheal tube and mechanical ventilation for a procedure like a GI scope or something like that. And then the other part of this, of course, is that there's a, a little bit of a bias in that if you died before 48 hours, you are also excluded because you didn't be you weren't ventilated for 48 hours. Yeah, they didn't reach that first criteria, right? Correct. So that I found that interesting. And then the second part you commented on, which is is that um, the majority of patients here in this study it was 75 percent of the patients that were on for 48 hours get an attempt to be liberated from the from the ventilator. So they have a weaning attempt and. Of those, most of them, two thirds of them, right, are in the first day or so. Um, they're early in their timing of their of their weaning attempt. Ten percent 
had between days two and seven and 10% greater than seven days before their, before their weaning attempt. I think that's probably pretty reflective of our practice. Um, you know, a lot of patients are ventilated for a short period of time and we give them a weaning attempt and they get successfully weaned within a day or two. There's a larger number that it takes a couple of the days. And then there are usually the sicker patients and, you know, they, they spend a lot of time talking about sedation as a, as an association with it. But sedation also is very associated with how sick you are. And, you know, when you're on higher ventilator settings, you tend to be more sedated, et cetera, et cetera. But that population who's more sedated, who's sicker, who has worse lung injury, et cetera, those patients, you know, will go more than seven days, more than a week before they get a weaning attempt. Um, I think this is pretty reflective of what we're seeing in practice. Yeah, I think a lot of the interesting part of this for me was highlighting the outcomes for patients, especially I think the the interesting part was those who had longer weaning attempts or longer time from initial weaning to extubation. Uh, you know, obviously length of stay increases as you are on the ventilator for longer, but it just really puts into perspective how long. So uh, for those who had a seven day or longer difference between their initial wean to actually being liberated from the ventilator, their median days in the hospital is 47. So 47 hospital days. And that's a median. That's that's a long time. You know, we get them off the ventilator. They're, indep- they're independent from like respiratory support. And for a lot of us, we don't take care of these patients when they transition to the ward and we don't have a great sense of what happens to them. But I mean, that's a month in the hospital after they leave the ICU. Yeah, a month plus. I think your point is well taken in that what happens outside the ICU is often off of our radar screen. And we get all excited when, you know, patients leave the ICU and we pat ourselves on the back and say, you know, hey, we got this patient better and that's awesome. But many of our patients have long, long hospital stays after they leave the ICU. And some of that is has to do with recovery and trying to recover. But a lot of that also has to do with where do these patients go? Um, you know, they're not back to their baseline where they can go home or wherever they were at before they came into the hospital. So we have to find a, an intermediary place for them where they can continue to convalesce and continue to get better and and before they go back to wherever they were before they came into the hospital. A couple of other things that stood out to me numbers-wise. So, you know, in figure one, of the patients that were in the study population, you essentially either got a separation attempt or you died on the ventilator. It's like less than 5% of patients that actually got transferred someplace without ever having a separation attempt. Um, and I think that's probably true. You know, it, we sort of don't think about sending you to an LTAC or another facility until we've sort of tried to at least wean you a couple times and say, oh man, this isn't going very well. This looks like it's going to be a long wean. So, you know, that's, I think, reflective. The mortality in this group was 28%. So a little bit over one out of four of the patients that are ventilated for 48 hours in an ICU die. I think we kind of know that in the back of our heads. But when you say that out loud, you kind of go, man, we're not very good at this. You know, this isn't this is not great outcomes for our patients. And clearly there's a lot of opportunity for us to to benefit there. Um, and then the last thing I'd say is, is that and part of this has to do with my interest in extubation and reintubation. So 13 percent of these patients got reintubated after they were separated. That was defined as within seven days. So lots of the reintubation data are 48 or 72 hours and not quite seven days. But 13% would say that that's a high-risk population. It's defined as 15% reintubation is a high-risk population. Having said that, 
when I talk to families, I tell them there's a one in six or one in seven chance that your loved one, even after they pass the spontaneous breathing trial, uh, will get reintubated. And that's about 13%. So that's pretty consistent with what I think is true in my practice and what I tell participants. But maybe the most interesting part to me is that those 13% of the patients that got reintubated uh, had a 29% mortality rate. So this is the first trial that I know of that didn't show a higher mortality rate when you got reintubated than overall. Overall mortality rate was 28%. Um, reintubation was 29%, which I think is really, really, really interesting. And I wonder if the data that we continue to use that says if you get reintubated, you have a higher mortality rate. Are older data and has that changed a little bit? And do we need to do we need to potentially relook at that? Does that math work out though? Right, because you said off the top that for all the patients that are ventilated, even those without getting a weaning attempt, it was twenty eight percent of patients who had died. And now you're saying that twenty nine percent of patients who were reintubated also died. But there's like there's overlap in those denominators in a way that makes it seem like the higher risk population does have more deaths, right? There is a little bit of an apples to oranges comparison there. There's no question about it. But I think people think that if you get reintubated, you have a really high mortality rate. And at least in my interpretation of this, if you get reintubated, your mortality rate is not necessarily higher than if you got intubated to begin with. And you're right. The patients that got reintubated are included in that initial 28% mortality for the group, for the initial group. So it's a, it's lower than that in that group when, if you don't add these back in, but not that much lower because it's only 29% of the people that got reintubated. I think where people actually look though is they say, well, if I extubate you and I don't reintubate you, your mortality rate isn't nearly as high as if I reintubate you. And of course that's the case, right? Because you don't die unless you get reintubated. Unless I guess you're a, you're a limitation of care and where you've limited your care so that you don't get reintubated again. But in reality, you know, it's sort of like saying you don't die if your heart doesn't stop. You don't die as frequently as, as if your heart stops. Right. Of course, that's part of the dying process. I just found these data interesting because all of the data that stick in my head. And that I think about, and sometimes I think about clinically as I'm caring for these patients is, is that if I've failed an extubation in a patient and now I'm reintubating them, I always think, man, they're going to have a really high mortality. This doesn't bode that well for them. And, and we just talked about 28% not being great numbers and we're not very good at our job. And 29% last time I checked is even higher than 28%. So we still aren't very good at our job, but it just makes me think, okay, you know, this isn't necessarily the complete end of the world if uh, I end up having to reintubate the patient. Yeah, so you're you're just saying if you if you need to reintubate the patient because it's the best thing for their clinical care that you shouldn't be putting them in a different light than the patient that you just intubated for the first time. Yeah, didn't I just say that over ten minutes? Um, the other the last thing I think that I found uh, really interesting, Eddie, in this is is that a spontaneous breathing trial was only used in about two thirds of the patients that there was a separation attempt, and we talk about this as sort of the standard of care and what we should do, and you should do as SBT. Twenty and a half percent of the patients where there was an attempt for separation, that attempt was just direct extubation. <laughs> That seems like a big number to me. But again, and then as I take a step back and I think about it, I'm like, maybe one out of five times that I'm trying to extubate somebody, I just 
directly extubate them. Many of the post-procedure stuff, post-surgeries, that sort of stuff, they don't necessarily get a full spontaneous breathing trial. They just get extubated. The patient that's like just crazy uh, and I can't get them sedated enough and they're agitated, I often, you know, we call it grip it and rip it, right? You just grab it and pull. Yeah, um, this, is, this brings us back to like our first couple of episodes, the rip it and run, pull and pray. Yeah. You don't put right? them through SBT, but you think they'll be okay. So you just extubate them. Yeah. Giddy up. Let's go. You know, cowboy up. I don't think that's, I feel like that's one in every five. Uh, Yeah. I think one in five is a little high, but uh, I do find it fascinating that if I gave you a boards question and said, you know, which of these is the correct way to extubate a patient? You're, I think, uh, most of the listeners at least can't maybe speak for you, Eddie, would choose SBT as their correct response. Yet in this situation, one in five times, that didn't happen. 20% of the time, we just you just grabbed it and ran. End of the shift, I guess. Yeah, or it could have been a self-exhibition, right? Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. I hate it when the patients don't put themselves through their own breathing trial. So, th- all right, that's all we have for episode 15 of the ICU Ed and Todd cast. Have any questions? Want to tell Todd that he got everything wrong? Want to tell us how to do percents correctly? Anything that you want us to talk about in the future, you can hit us up at the ICU Ed and Todd cast at gmail.com. You can also hit us up on the social at ICU cast at Ed Chan, E-D-Q-I-N, and at Todd Rice underscore ICU. Thank you, Todd, again for your insights. Thank you to the study team for all their hard work. Uh, thank you to Mike Gannon for the intro and outro music. Thank you for everyone listening, and we will see you next time. Let's go save some lives. Let's go directly extubate some people. This podcast is made for educational purposes. The content provided in this podcast and in any length materials is not intended and should not be considered as medical advice and should not be used to diagnose or treat any medical condition. It's inevitable we try to stay away from opinions, but all opinions represent our own and not of any entity that we work at. Please keep this in mind as you enjoy the podcast.